Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Pure Hoops podcast most definitely does reflect the views of our management. Here's three-time NBA champ BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. The Pure Hoops Podcast. We have a special compilation episode this week as we feature some of BJ Armstrong's best memories from the decade of the 1990s. Some epic stuff in here from rivals, finals matchups, and some of the best teams and players from that incredible era. Previously on Back in the 90s. In the 90s, who was the guy that you loved the challenge of playing against? Your position whether you faced him four or five times a year in the East or only twice a year in the West, but who was the guy that you loved going up against the most back in your day and why? Well, well, the first thing I'll say before answering the question is I loved every night having an opportunity to play in in that league. And it took me about two games to figure that out, okay? It took me two games to really figure out that before I named the person that I, you know, I admired, I coveted, I was like, I was focused in. It took me two games to figure out that everyone in that league is really, really, really good. And if I just said this person is good and and, and not – prepare the same way for this person over here that I was going to be in trouble. That took me about two games. Uh, The player that I enjoyed, I looked forward to playing against the most was Isaiah Thomas. Um, I grew up in Detroit. I watched him as a rookie. I was able to see him and his growth and develop as a young player. Um, And he was a player that I admired greatly because of his ability to manage a game. Um, I first got into the point guard position. I watched another young player in high school by the name of Irving Johnson, who grew up in Lansing. Mm, you know, Magic Johnson. I've heard of him. Yeah, you've heard of him. You know, so, you've we, got, we, so you've got Magic in Lansing, you've got yeah, Isaiah, Isaiah in, in Chicago, Chicago, and then they both go to Big Ten schools, yeah. which is eventually right, where right. you went. And so Young Buck, as we called Magic then, or they called him then because he's a little older than me, I was always impressed with the ability of how you manage a game. Like how do you manage a game – while playing in the game. I was just intrigued by the concept. I have no idea. To this day, I'm still intrigued by watching players like Jason Kidd and players who figure out how to play, and they don't have to score or do anything else, but they can manage a game. Isaiah Thomas was the player for me that did that for me. I couldn't wait to play against him because I knew how good he was, but I just wanted to see it, experience it, 
in an actual game. And he was better than advertised because not only could he manage the game, he could score. He probably was Allen Iverson before Allen Iverson. But he took the game and he managed all the other parts of the game and he integrated his talent into the team. Uh, Allen Iverson was a phenomenal offensive player, and I had a chance to play against Allen, and, look, that kid can score. I mean, he could – he was tough, durable. He was unbelievable. But he never learned how to manage the game. And I used to always tell Bubba – Bubba Chuck is what they called him. I said, Bubba, if you ever played the point guard position and managed it, as phenomenal as you are as a a two-guard, who could really guard you as as a point guard? Uh, and I thought Isaiah was able to do that. He he was able to pick and choose when he wanted to just be a scorer, when he wanted to be a facilitator. Defensively, he could he could push up and apply the pressure. And most importantly, he knew how to to really. He was like a card dealer. He knew how to create the flow of the game. And he was the player that I. I, I, I saw how good he was offensively, but he didn't always show you what he could really do. He probably – he without question, he could average 25 to 30 points in this game. Right. But in order for that team to, to get, get the, the championship, championship level – He he did what he had to do. Um, and the player who taught me how good players really was, was – and I remember him as well, was this player by the name of Steve Coulter. Steve Coulter, for the most part, was probably a backup throughout his career – but he was a really, really good player. And he had this one move where he would throw it behind his back. I don't know how he would do it. And that's when I learned to respect not only the Isaiah Thomases and the Magic Johnsons and, you know, all of the great players, but I learned to respect every single player that got on a uniform. Even if I don't know you or never played against you or maybe this is your first year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat you with the same respect I would treat <laughs> Larry Bird. One of the highlights of this era was the playoff domino effect in the Eastern Conference that began in the 1980s and continued into the decade of the 90s. Previously on Back in the 90s. That 1991 playoff run, you know, most well known for the Bulls, of course, finally uh, taking down the Pistons and, of course, the Pistons' controversial exit to the court, which we'll talk about another time. But people forget that the Magic Johnson Lakers were there waiting for you, and the Lakers who had won the title in 88 against Detroit, lost in 89 as they had some injuries, but Detroit probably was ready to take the title from them anyway. And then in 19, uh, 1990, the Blazers go to the finals, and Magic comes back with the Lakers in 91, and they take down Portland, the Bulls take down Detroit, and you guys on your way to your first championship, you're against Magic and Worthy and Byron Scott. What was it like knowing that you were trying to take the torch from those guys and uh, get to the top of the mountaintop for the first one? Well, the thing I remember most was we knew that the Detroit Pistons weren't going to lay down and give us the game. If we are going to win that game, we are going to have to go over there and win it and take it. So that was the mindset. And, you know, unlike today, there was a lot of psychological warfare going on. The, the Pistons 
were a great group. They were a very prideful group, and they knew how to win games because they didn't depend on their offense to win games. They were a defensive-oriented team. They were defensive-minded. Their mindset was, if we're going to stop you, we're going to be able to – we're going to break you mentally, and then we're going to grind this game out. And we knew that we were going to have to – if we were going to dethrone them, if you will – we were going to have to take on that same mindset and be able to meet the energy that was necessary to defeat this team because this team was well coached under the late Chuck Daly. Um, we were a young group. We didn't have the experience, nor did we were battle tested like them, but we knew that we had a, a system in place and that system wasn't our, our offense, or we had this young, great player, Michael Jordan, we knew defensively we were a really, really good team. You know, and that was led by Scotty and, and Michael and Horace Grant. We knew we could defend on the interior with Bill Cartwright. And we had the flexibility to defend and do a lot of things on the court, which could keep us in ball games. So uh, we were up for the challenge, and we were able to really – take their best punch on the defensive end and offensively we weren't concerned on whether or not we can score enough points we were concerned could we get enough stops you know and that was probably the mindset of the game back then as compared to now was we were more concerned about could we stop them three four consecutive times in a row and once we knew that that would shorten their bench because they had some scores coming off their bench you know whether it was Vinny Johnson or, you know, Sally or Buddha Edwards or whom have you, we wanted to be able to stop this team, force those guys to play extended minutes and really wear them down because we knew the longer the series went in because we were younger at the time, the better that we would be. And uh, we were very fortunate that we won, I think, 4-0 yep. in that series and uh, really move on and, and win a championship our first championship that year as well. As a as a thirteen year old kid, I was I was holding on to my big three Celtics. It was the last grasp, and I <laughs> I really thought they had a shot to get to the Bulls, as it was the Chuck Person Larry Bird duel in the first round, and then the Pistons waiting there in the, in the second round, and and Bird, as you remember, was just running on fumes as was as was Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish but Reggie Lewis was really emerging and the Celtics were actually up 2-1 in that series and um, they ran out of gas they lost a heartbreaking game six um, on a uh, on what I must say and this is I think this is the first time on our show I'm gonna curse um they they lost a heartbreaking game six to Detroit in game six, in Detroit, in overtime, on a bullshit offensive goaltending call on Kevin McHale that could have put that series in seven games. And, Brucey, buddy, I don't know why you're t- uh, messaging me about 1990 and losing to the Knicks. That's 1990. We're talking 91 here. Same year as the Bulls and the Lakers going to the finals. And, BJ, that loss haunted me because I wanted the Celtics to play the Bulls one time. Um, but the thing I want to ask you about, last thing on this topic, I'll never forget when you guys lost game one at home 
on that Sam Perkins three off of the magic kickout, and he made that huge shot. What was it like going back to the locker room in Chicago Stadium, losing game one in the finals to Magic Johnson and the Lakers, and trying to pivot off of that? Because this is your first finals experience. I'm curious if you remember what that vibe was. Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, it was our first time in the finals, and it was a, clearly a different atmosphere. And there was a lot of – it was like a circus atmosphere because you had Magic Johnson, who at the time had five championships. You had Michael Jordan, his first NBA final. So there was, there was a lot of energy in the building. And for some reason, I can recall the pregame speech where the coaching staff, Phil Jackson, just asked us as a unit – to focus in on all of the technical things in this game. And he said, if you're going to lose a game, this is the game that you're going to lose. And the reason being is because, first, you guys have never been here. Second, we don't know what they're going to do. And this is like a fill-out game. It's like, out of respect, you have to understand that this team is a really good team. And they're going to come out and give you their best shot because they've been there before. James Worthy and Byron Scott and, and all those guys have been there before. And if we were going to lose a game, this was probably going to be it because of, you know, we were going to be nervous, which was expected. We were going to make some mistakes because of our youth, which was expected. Uh, but the thing he said was, I want you all to focus in on the fundamentals of the game so that you can know that how to make the necessary adjustments to win the rest of the games that's necessary. And that just took a lot of pressure off of all of us. And I remember after we lost the game, everyone came in and was like, oh, okay, I get it. And we knew exactly what we had to do, technically speaking, of what we needed to do to win the rest of the series. So that we weren't discouraged. We knew the mistakes we made. We knew the adjustments that we had to make individually and collectively as a group, and we just focused in on the fundamentals of the game, all the technical things. We could have done a better job of, of forcing Magic Johnson to make a bounce pass instead of an overhead pass. Mm. So one of the adjustments I remember we made was we took Michael Jordan off of Magic Johnson and we put Scottie Pippen on Magic Johnson. Yep. And the reason we did that was because we wanted Magic Johnson to throw bounce passes. Now, that seems like a very little thing to people, but that allowed us to get into the proper rotation because a bounce pass is a slower pass than an overhead pass. And that little adjustment was like a massive thing for us yep. because Magic Johnson is such an incredible passer that if we could slow the game down by just forcing him to make a bounce pass gave us the opportunity to run around and get in rotation and do the things – and those were the things that we focused in on. We didn't worry about so much the score because we knew if we did the other things that we would have an opportunity to play and win the game. And I think we, yeah, we, I think we won the next four games. Yep. You uh, just by focusing in on the fundamentals of the game. And th those were little things like that. And I just remember that. And that really calmed us down as a group, but allowed us to say, you know what, in the end, fundamentally speaking, we have to be prepared to play every possession at a high level, and uh, we were able to do that. Uh, that's great insight. I, I'm, I'm picturing those Magic Johnson over 
overhead laser beams at six foot nine. Oh yeah, I, I, I mean, if you if you let magic pick you, I mean, the one thing about magic is he he'll pick you apart because he can see over the top. You know, he was six nine, so you know, you know, even though Michael was six six, he could still pass over the top. Yep. Uh, just making him make a bounce pass to the post allowed us to double team Sam Perkins and Vladdy Divac. And that's, I mean, it doesn't sound like much, but it was like one of the things, it was like, great. I remember we were all so excited because Magic was throwing bounce passes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the little things. And that was like, it was like, if we could just get Magic Johnson to throw a bounce pass, it would slow the game down. And Scotty was just big enough to make him do it. And we knew then that we could play defense at a much higher level because the passes weren't getting there as fast. Yep. Yep. And that was it. Was like little things like that. So, uh, you know, you know that when you when you're out there playing, I think you just kind of focus in on the job at hand, the task at hand, and that was one of the things that we did to, to calm our nerves. As the Bulls rose in the East and captured their first NBA title in 1991, new rivalries began to form as a certain four-time NBA championship coach from the 1980s made his way to the Big Apple. In '91, the Bulls swept the eighth-seeded Knicks. Then Pat Riley arrived, and the New York-Chicago rivalry was on. What was it like going into a jam-packed Madison Square Garden for a big game against the Knicks in the early 90s? Back to the 90s we go. Well, the the thing that I remember most about those times was, one, there were some marvelous, wonderful basketball players, right? Uh, you know, Patrick Ewing, who I, I've i known since I was in high school, Charles Oakley, um, and the relationships that everyone had, you know, prior to us getting to the game. There was, it, the, the, the rivalry was started out of respect, right? And the respect that we had for those Knicks teams, I mean, was the highest. I mean, Patrick Ewing, was the best of the best. I mean, Charles Oakley and, you know, the late Anthony Mason and Derek Harper. And I mean, those were just great, great players in their own right. Um, and then, of course, you had phenomenal coaches. I mean, you had Pat Riley sitting there versus Phil Jackson. So the strategic and the detail that we prepare for those games, you know, I loved. I loved it when we played against great coaches because I had an opportunity to see what Phil Jackson and the staff was going to come up with and how we were going to throw new wrinkles. And And I, I remember when we would play the Knicks during the regular season, we would never run any plays hmm. because we didn't want to give them any opportunity to scout us. I mean, that's how much respect we have for them. We were already preparing to see them during the regular season by not showing anything, so that they didn't have time. So you're, to so you're, so you're already, scout. so you're already thinking about that playoff matchup. You're Absolutely. Pl- you're playing. The, they, so you're playing the Knicks in December of '91, and you're already saying, "Okay, we're saving A, B, C, and D, so they don't see it live. It's not on tape. Obviously, back then, no league pass. You're not getting every game film of every it, it, team. It was great, and 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 I, and I specific, we would play them sometime on Christmas, and it was always in the big game when we play them. Yep. And I remember, 
you know, coach would go up to the board. He would, he would erase the board and he'd go, okay, this game is about two things, effort and energy. That's it. So you'd and run just would, straight regular we, we triangle? We would play them in the regular season because it was almost as if we were just gathering information to be prepared for whatever we could potentially throw out because Pat Riley was – Pat Riley had a plethora of plays, and they had combinations. They would play Mason at the center, and they would. And we were always trying to figure out ways to play them in a way that would give us an advantage because they were a tough team. They were going to defend, and we knew we were going to have to play selfless basketball because they were going to contest every single shot. So um, I, I just remember that it was like a chess match. I remember – you know, us playing and saying, you know what, we're, let's just see if we just, you know, we would we would we would have these plays. <laughs> I don't know why this is coming back to me now, but we would have these plays where we would we would call these plays reverse action. And most teams would want to reverse the ball from side to side to move the defense. We would want to keep the ball on one side of the floor just to see how they would rotate. <laughs> we would do things like that in the regular season so we knew how to attack them in the last three to four minutes of a game. So if you ever get a chance to go back, watch how we would always keep Michael on the, on the strong side of the ball so that they could never get into rotations because we always wanted to isolate John Starks for like two seconds before, it, before they could get into their rotation because defensively they were so good, they had plays against our offense. And we would do – creative things like this that we would only do it at certain times during the game and I can vividly as I'm talking remember Phil hollering and screaming at me saying BJ it's not time to run plays yet and and I can vividly remember him saying it's not time to go to Michael yet because it wasn't time for us to show them what we really were trying to do we just wanted to keep the game close enough so that we can get off an uncontested shot late in ball games. And that was the detail in which we played. We we would play the whole game to really play for just those two or three possessions that we needed to beat them because they were that good of a team. So um, I don't know why that came back to me, but I can remember. I just had so much respect for them and Pat Riley and Patrick and all of those guys there because they, you know, that those were that was a great era. Um, not because we played the game differently. It was just – it was just a chess match, and it wasn't about – even though it was a physical game, but the things that they were trying to do and what we were trying to do, it was just a battle of wills. And um, every time I see, you know, one of those guys or Pat Riley to this day, you know, we always stop and chat. It's, it's really funny. Uh, we always chat about those days and what we could have done different to win those games or lose those games, but those were great times, those New York and Bull rivalries. So you would legitimately do certain things so you could just figure out their rotations and just bake them into showing their hand, essentially, so you would know how to handle it in the spring. I find that unbelievably fascinating. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, look, they, defensively, I mean, back then, you, you, you know, you played with hand checking, right? So yep. you had to figure out you, – you, you learned how to play for – space and real estate on the floor and you know you don't have to do that as much today because you know the physicality of the game is gone you know but back then I had to fight to get open I mean literally you had to <laughs> you had to fight to get open so you learned how to fight and put a guy on isolation with one or two seconds and that's all you really needed so if you ever watch Jordan play 
just watch how efficient he was as a player, as a scorer, because he never dribbled the ball more than three times before he was either at the rim, uh, stop and pop, or posting up before the double team could come because he realized that these other teams were already into rotation. I mean, his understanding, I would imagine, as a scorer had to be at a much higher level because he had to play against three or four people. A lot of times he's playing against five people. You know, that's what the Jordan rules and all those things were about. So how he was able to manage that, manipulate that with Phil Jackson and the staff and us players figuring it out as well. As I watched the game, it, it was just it was a very sophisticated way of playing. Today is a little different because the three point shot allows them to have real estate that we just didn't explore at that time. I mean, Steph Curry has made the game. He's expanded the game, right? right. The court, um, the court space, the way he plays, the, the, the court three point shot obviously has given these guys a lot of more, a lot more space and real estate to operate with. Yeah, the court spacing back then is obviously uh, a lot different, and you alluded to this uh, on an earlier show about the triangle, which was, you know, had its certain strategies on offense, but it was, you know, it was a key to your defense because you had you had the guys getting back, so. Let me let me ask you this because you know this is my you know you guys beat the Knicks the year before Riley in the first round uh, 3-0 sweep on your way to the first title against the Lakers um, I think that's when Jordan had that famous fake hesitation on the baseline and uh, Ewing came over and he just went over the top of him which was a a, a very memorable moment in '92. You had a seven-game series with them in the second round, which was very, very memorable. But, you know, people think the 93 Knicks, that was their best team. That was their best shot. And they're up 2-0 on you guys. You go back to Chicago, tie the series, and then you come back to Madison Square Garden for that infamous Game 5, which, of course, ends with Charles Smith being denied multiple times in the paint and I believe you end up with the ball going down the floor correct me if I'm wrong to to clinch it but before that that closing moment what was the juice like in that building because to this day I throw that game on and I can feel it through the television I can feel it through Marv Albert's voice I need to know what that felt like from your perspective with what those stakes were what that rivalry had turned into and what Madison Square Garden felt like that night. Well, Madison Square Garden was and is still my, my favorite arena to play. Um, the energy is electric, uh, the city, and the, the, I, I just think they're very knowledgeable f- basketball fans, right? I, I mean, okay, they're Knicks fans and they're rooting for the Knicks but somewhere down, they have an appreciation for just great basketball. And, you know, uh, the one thing I always appreciate and admire about New Yorkers is, you know, they call you all types of names, right? You know, you, I, I remember we get on the bus and, oh, Armstrong, you suck, and da-da-da, and they're spitting at the bus and they're doing all those things. But after the game, they're like, man, it's a great game. And I always respect it. And I still respect that to this day when I walk in New York and it, 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 and my my family always asks me, why everyone always 
talks to you in New York. Like I will be walking in New York and people will always like, I remember those games. And that's how knowledgeable they are. And I always respected that. I always respect the fact that, you know what, when they came there, they, they stick with their team. And um, those were just great, great games. The intensity and playing a game where you have to play every possession means something. Every pass means something. I mean, I, I just remember how exhausted, you know, we would be or we were after those games and what they take out of you. You know, it's like, you know, I would imagine being like in a heavyweight fight or something where you know you got to take this other team's best shot and you know you have to be able to absorb the physicality of the game, all of the mental things that's happening, uh, the adjustments, the crowds, the ups, the downs, and whatever's going on. And you're playing that game to just really get to one possession. One possession may be the difference in winning and losing that game. So the the detail that we would go through to prepare for those games, I, I just remember there was no talking before the game. There was no, like, celebration after the game because you knew it was going to take everything that you possibly had in you to to perform, let alone win those games. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to be on the winning side, but those were great teams, and we knew then and – and I think we all respect, and I think I can speak for the team, is that we respected those teams and we respected, you know, everything about what those games meant to us and the success we had as an organization. But we also respect our opponents. And and, and I, I mean that, you know, New York, you know, those guys, Patrick Ewing and those guys, uh, you know, they need to be applauded, you know, because they, those were great teams. They were great competitors and those were great times for us old guys who had a chance to participate in those games. They really were. And, you know, after, after Reggie Lewis passed away, I was tortured growing up in New York as a Celtics fan. I mean, legitimately tortured. And I developed such a dislike for the Knicks, but respected those rivalries. And now we're at the point where it's so many years removed and the Knicks have remained this organization that can't figure it out. And, it, they need to be good again. They need to be good again because it makes the league better. They need to be good again because it makes New York better as a whole. Like there are thousands upon thousands of New Yorkers who will have a better day if the Knicks are winning basketball games. That's how seriously they take the oh, NBA sure. and the, and the Knicks. I mean, yeah, I mean they're serious up there. And you know what? You know, it's 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 it's. it's I kind of learned this in New York and and growing up in Detroit. We kind of have the same you know attitude to a certain degree is, you know, New Yorkers, they can talk about the Knicks, but the people out that, that aren't Knicks fans, you can't talk about the Knicks. <laughs> and all of my friends, all oh, the Knicks, 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 but as soon as you say something about it, oh, wait a minute, those are my Knicks. Can't, you can't say that. While there was great familiarity between the Bulls and the Knicks in the East, Chicago would face a different Western Conference champion in the finals each year during their first three-peat. All were unique in terms of talent and makeup in their own way. Back to the 90s we go. We are going back to the 90s. Last couple of episodes, we've kind of just weaved it in, but right. I'm getting back to this segment. So a conversation that I've loved having over the years that I really want to take your temperature on is, who's the best team the Bulls faced and beat in the finals? And there was always something about that 93 Suns team that was really fun. Barkley won the MVP. KJ, Thunder Dan, but obviously you had that stretch where 
so many interesting matchups in the Western Conference, starting 91 with the Lakers, 92 with the Blazers, 93 with the Suns, and then, of course, uh, the second three-peat was Sonics and then the Jazz twice. But in your stint with the Bulls during that three-peat, what was the uh, what was the toughest matchup? Who was the best team you guys played in the finals? Well, the, the toughest matchup, I think, in, in that that segment where we did play the Lakers, I, I thought clearly – if I can just say who I thought the best player in the in those three was Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson clearly was the best player I think we played against or we saw in those three championships, the first three. Uh, Barkley was an MVP. He was playing the game at a super high level, uh, arguably the best basketball in his career. And uh, take nothing away from him and that team because that was a really good team. But in my opinion, the best team was was the 92 or was it, yeah 92 Portland Trailblazers. That team, you know, you had Terry Porter and Clyde Drexler at the guards. You had Jerome Kersey. You had Buck Williams. And then you had Kevin Duckworth. That was a really good team. And if I remember, I think Danny Ainge was coming Danny up. Danny Ainge, was Cliff, Cliff Robinson. Robinson. I mean, this was a really, really, really good team. And they beat us twice that year. Oh, wow. They beat us twice that year. That didn't happen often. No. So – this team had our respect. They had the athleticism to play with us because we were an athletic team. You know, we had Horace and Scotty and Michael. But they had the size with, with Duckworth and Buck Williams was as physical as anybody. And they had big guards. I mean, Danny Ainge and Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter. Um, so they, 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 you know, I think it was Wayne Cooper, I think, was on that team. They had a really good team. Man. Mark Bryant. Mark Bryant was Mark Bryant team. was a really good bench um, big. I mean, they had a really, really good team. So that team was, you know, Rick Adelman, if I believe yeah. correctly. And they, were, and they were hungry because in 90, they lose to the Pistons. Right. In 91, they have the best record in the West. And I'll never forget the Danny Ainge quote. We had one bad weekend and we were wiped out of the playoffs when they lost to Magic Once and the go. Lakers. Right. And then they come back in 92 and obviously, you know, th yeah, that, I mean, that series went six, if I recall. Yeah, if I, recall. I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, you, you had Danny Ainge, who was, who was coming off the bench, but he was clearly he could start in this league. Yep. Cliff Robinson, who went on, I think he was like an all-star or later, six-man yep, later in yep. his career. You, you know, you had Buck Williams, and who was an all-star. You had Duckworth, who was an all-star. You had Clyde Drexler, who was always in the MVP. And, you know, so this was a, this was a terrific team. Um, they were a team that gave us the most problems because they were just as athletic, um, you know, as we were. And, you know, Clyde Drexler, I mean, at, at that point, there was some debate on, you know, yeah. who was better. You know, you're talking Clyde Drexler. And I remember, Jordan, and right? I remember that. I remember and that. And I think, you know, Jordan uh, made sure to let everybody know what the argument. Whatever, but, whatever fuel he could put in that fire. So, man. but, you know, and Clyde Drexler was a great player in his own right. So, if if I had to say what was the best team, that was always the best team. You know, Magic, you know, Magic was, he was Magic. And Charles was Charles. Um, but that Portland team, they caught our attention. Yeah. They had our attention because we knew how dangerous they could be. And they were a great downhill team, meaning they could. Oh, they, oh, they get it. They had they, it going. Yeah. They had it going. So we not we couldn't utilize what was our biggest asset, which was our athleticism. Mm -hmm. We had to actually control the tempo of the game in order to beat them. And uh, we had the discipline to do it. But they were a team that really that we respected. I mean, because they were they were very capable.
quickly, do you remember what the feeling was like in Chicago Stadium when you closed them out? Because the three chips, you win 91 in L.A., you win 93 in Phoenix. 92 was home. Do you remember what Chicago Stadium felt like the night you closed them out? Yeah, I I, I do. Um, And I remember that was a huge learning experience for, for us. Because the first one we won on the home at the at the time the series were two three two, mm-hmm. and playing the first series prepared us for winning the second one because it's easier to win on the road because you don't have as many distractions. So we were very comfortable winning on the road because you don't have all the distractions that you have at home the tickets, family requests. And you're just in your room. You can turn the phone off, and then you're you're good. Winning at home, there was an expectation, and I remember uh, Coach Jackson and Phil Jackson um, telling us that winning at home is going to be the most difficult thing you guys have ever ever have done. And we didn't get it in that game that we closed them out. We were down, I think, fifteen or twenty points going into the third quarter or something, going into the third or fourth quarter. Well, I just pulled up the series here. You guys won game one at home in a blowout. You lose game two at home. So it's 1-1 going back to Portland. You win game three to go up 2-1. Portland comes back and wins a close game four. You guys win game five in Portland. And then game six, I mean, this series was – it, it was, it was it, it, well, well, this series is interesting. You have games in the hundreds, and then you've got games in, in the high 80s. So the, the final was 97-93 uh, in, uh, in, in game six. And, yeah, you outscored the Blazers 33-14 to 14 in the in fourth, fourth quarter. We were down. The, the, the thing I remember about that was we were down. And the reason I remember that is because television and the arena has to be prepared whether you win or lose. And I remember walking in, the confetti was already ready. You saw the champagne was already ready. If we won, television had to be ready. Yep. And that's just yeah. all the wrong things right. you want to do for the other team. They're like, oh, oh, they think the series is over. Yep. Okay. We were down huge. Okay. And the funny thing about that series that I remember was our bench the most unlikely place that we thought was going to help us win this series. That's who brought us back in the fourth quarter. It wasn't Michael I'm, Jordan. I'm, I'm, I'm flashing back to it some was, Cliff Levingston scrappiness. It wasn't Scottie Pippen. It hmm. was Bobby Hansen, myself, Stacy King, Scott Williams. We had a run. And I'll never forget it. And, and, and it, was a, it was just a great coaching lesson we were down big. Phil Jackson was already preparing for the next game. Wow. We were preparing for the next game because you had to lose. Back then, you you didn't just – you didn't play and let a team beat you. You had to lose and say, okay, we're because we're trying to win the series. So he took the starters out saying, okay, you guys go back. If we make a run, we make a run. But, hey, we're just going to – it is what it is. We were down big in this. We were down big. Long story short, we come back, and I'll never forget Phil Jackson calls a timeout. We got it rolling. It's rolling. We, we come back. I don't know. We come back big. 
we're playing against Clyde Drexler and these guys, and we come back, and the game now is ready. And I'll never forget, Michael had like a towel. He always used to sit with a towel over his shoulders. And I remember he looked in at a timeout, and he said, Phil, put me back in, and I won't lose this game. And, and, but he said it with such conviction that the players who were playing was like, put that guy back in the game. <laughs> I mean, and as they say, the rest is history. He said it with such conviction. As, as I like to say, basketball cinema. Yeah, right? it, it, was, it was like, it was like, I know I haven't been playing up to this point. Put me back in and I'll win this game. And if you then he does it, it. thirty three points. He goes out and he wins the. He puts him in. But the thing I respected about Phil was even though his best player wasn't playing well that game, the confidence that he had in him, even when he wasn't playing his best, he still had it. And that was, it was like a confidence booster to everyone. Is saying, yeah, we're gonna play well because you're playing well right now, Eric. But. It was this guy's job to close the game, even though he wasn't playing well. Yep. And that was such a great thing for me to see as a young player because, to me, that's what sports is all about. You know your role. And Jordan's role was not to play the game. It was to close it. And we got the game close enough for him to close it. He did his job. We went in to win the championships, and the Bulls win six titles. But I remember that being the moment of winning at home is way more, it's 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 so difficult to win at home because the other team is seeing you get prepared for the for the for the for uh, for the celebration and it's 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 hard great story <laughs> thank you for taking me back to the 90s today my friend we hope you enjoyed our back to the 90s compilation episode this week be sure to download, subscribe, rate, and listen to all of our Pure Hoops media shows as we'll have a lot of exciting new content on the way for the 2019-2020 season. Don't forget to check out the Mike Wise Show dropping on Mondays, Catch and Shoot with Noah Kozlov and Adam Stanko dropping on Wednesdays, and Bucket Sports and Blocks with Monica McNutt each Thursday. Please help us grow by spreading the word and sharing our shows like a true point guard. Enjoy your weekend, everyone. The Pure Hoops podcast is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.